Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast in hours two. I am your co-host, TJ. I'm Bridget. No last names today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and today we are talking about the fifth episode of the second season, Sing a Song of Murder. So, Bridget, would you like to give us a brief summary of what happens in this episode? I think in lieu of a summary, I would just like to perform a little song. Okay. Okay. Goodbye, little yellow bird. <laughs> yes. I mean, that, that right there like sums up the entire... No, I really... I had this vision of both of us singing, you know, like you joining in the way the audience does. Oh, but the thing you is... You should have known that was not going to happen. I know. You'll never do that. You're not that person. But also, like, she sings in a range that there is no way I can hit. So... It's just, yeah. I mean, it is pretty phenomenal what Angela Lansbury is able to do with her voice in this episode as her, as <laughs> Jessica's once again, one of her far flung diaspora of, you know, relations um, is singing on stage. And I was remarking to my partner while we were watching this, amazing. She has such a pure voice, but also a slightly brassy one. And so it's an interesting mm-hmm. vocal dynamic that I think Angela Lansbury has in particular. Okay, so you guys, the reason that we open with Goodbye Little Yellow Bird is that this is obviously an episode that's a complete and total homage to Lansbury's personal background growing up in the UK until she moved to the US. And her mother, Moyna McGill, who was a musical actor uh, and wanted to be a serious Shakespearean actor. And then um, also, you know, has tons of references to Lansbury's first screen role, which was a picture of Dorian Gray, where she sings Goodbye Little Yellow Bird. So that's the actual like summary. But but I think I love this episode because she plays both Jessica mm-hmm. Fletcher and her genetically impossible identical cousin, Emma McGill, whose last name of course is a nod to Lansbury's mother. It's just it's such a like meta deep loving episode that is just full of like ugh, ugh, i love this episode i did too yeah and i mean i would just like to point out that it's not entirely genetically impossible for two cousins to be almost identical i would point your example to george v and nicholas ii um the king of england and emperor of russia respectively no no no, no. Very- we're not gonna do royalty because royalty's inbred of course they look identical. I mean, I also have a very striking resemblance to a number of my cousins. So I don't, you know, I'm just saying that like, it's yes, very possible. Yes, you can have a striking resemblance, but you could not be genetically identical. Well, we don't know about their genetic identity. We just know they look alike. <laughs> I think you're splitting hairs. I mean, maybe I'm the one splitting hairs. I'm not sure which of us is splitting hairs by this point. But I also, I love how they distinguish the two of them. So obviously Emma has a Cockney accent and it's just a delight to hear Lansbury do that. Um, but then Emma's hair is redder mm-hmm. and Jessica's is a little blonder. And then Emma wears much darker, heavier makeup, even when she's not performing on stage. So it's just really fun the way that they, I think, distinguish the two. Yes. And I mean, I, I have shades of Mrs. Lovett with Emma too. Oh, sure. Obviously, but which obviously Lansbury had been in just a few years previously when she was in Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd, yeah. So you're thinking because of the, like the sort of the garishness of Emma McGill's makeup that it and the red and the broad accent too. Yeah, because Mrs. Lovett has a hugely broad, <laughs> almost shrill cockney. Mm-hmm. That is, I mean, obviously Emma's not quite that shrill, but she's definitely not that far away from you it. You know either. what I really like about the character Emma, though, Teach. It, it struck me when I was watching this because you know I've all I've grown up seeing this episode dozens of times, but and I always thought like, well, Emma's the fun, campy one. And then Jessica's like the serious one. 
just as anything with like twins or sisters or whatever, you know, always, you know, has them sort of broken up. But it's, it, it struck me this time that how often in media do we have Cockney characters and they're supposed to be like played for laughs and not taken seriously as people. And yet Emma's actually quite smart. Right. Like she recognizes immediately that someone is trying to kill her. These are not coincidences. And she concocts the idea of faking her death to protect herself. I mean, she's actually a very clever person. And I appreciated that about her, as you say. And I mean, in contrast to the other Cockney characters in this episode who are almost distractingly comedic, like they're, even the tough who's like sort of threatening Emma is just so over the top. It's very difficult for me not to read it as just straightforward camp. Like... <laughs> But as you as you rightly mm-hmm. point out, like Emma has a sophistication to her that belies what we necessarily would expect of a character like this normally. It's I think it's um I think it's credit to the writing. This was written by Peter Fisher, the series creator, and so I think he's just a fantastic writer. It ha- this episode has so much depth, and that character is so round and full of life. But I also think it's a real testament to Lansbury. I mean, mm-hmm. ha- who if not Angela Lansbury can take forty years of screen material and even stage material with small parts. And turn them into something deep and rich and full of heart. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. she is the queen of doing that. Yeah. I mean, just as a brief aside, I was telling Bridget earlier that I just watched The Long Hot Summer, in which she appears as a Southern woman pursuing late 1950s Orson Welles. And she's a, it's a very bit part, but as, you, as you're pointing out here, like, she milks that so much and is able to capture this woman who is, for some strange reason, in love with, with Orson Welles playing Big Daddy from from cat on a hot tin roof essentially (laughs) and she makes it believable even though she's playing again a very broad southern accent and it's a very small part respectively i think that as you say that one of the her grand skills as an actress was a was that ability to make the most out of even very small bit parts definitely so we also have so i think maybe one of the people you're talking about that feels a little cartoony to you was um kenneth danzinger plays archie who co-owns the music hall with Emma. Um, and I just was like, Archie, Archie. And I kept confusing this with another episode. And then, of course, it's because he's literally the same actor and that character is also called Archie in a later episode, Tinker, Taylor, mm. Liar, Thief, which is also set in London and is one of my favorite Murder, She Wrote episodes. So at some point, we just decided we were just going to have people come back and have the exact same character name. <laughs> I mean, that's what one does in television, right? We also have um, Olivia Hussey as Kitty, who is the daughter of a guy named Oliver, who's played by Patrick McNee from The Avengers. I mean, this is like a stellar cast. And then we have Glynis Johns. Oh, I love Glynis Johns. Votes for women! Yes, votes for women. We have her playing Bridget, who is the Irish sort of maid or dresser to uh, Emma. And she mentions at one point that she's been working for Emma for 30 years. And that's actually an echo of Lansbury's real life. She had the same dresser for decades and decades until I think it started in Mame. It might have been before because Mame had so many costume changes. They knew they needed someone excellent. And they mm-hmm. stayed together until Lansbury took over Murder, She Wrote in season six. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a nice grace note that I would not have known otherwise. Yeah. Well, it might be like one of the first bad things I've heard about Lansbury because she kind of dumped her. Oh. Um, I know. After like decades of being together. But I totally thought Glynis Johns' character was sort of 
like referencing that in a way for people who knew Lansbury's life. But also it's Glynis mm-hmm. Johns. She was friends with Lansbury. I mean, she's she's just wonderful in this part doing her Irish she is, accent. She's so alive, by the way. I know I was gonna say I'll tell you that. Yep. She is ninety seven, I believe. Ninety eight. I knew she was ninety seven, ninety eight, yep. Isn't that crazy it's that she's wonderful. still going strong? I know, I love it. She also in the in this around this same time was also a voice in a Scooby Doo cartoon, Scooby Doo and the Ghoul School, oh, where she plays the headmistress. Really? That's yeah. amazing. I'm still kind of mad because I grew up with Mary Poppins, and of course, her character and Mary Poppins were supposed to laugh at, right? Like the privileged, right. rich, rich white feminist who's out trying to get votes, but like doesn't even pay attention to her own kids. And like now I look back on that and I'm like, hey, no, like we should have taken her more seriously. And I mean, I mean, I, what I love about Glenis Johns is partially her voice. She has a very rich, deep, mm-hmm. almost horse husky voice. And I, I've always had a soft spot for those particular kind of actresses that make the most. And she's kind mm-hmm. of a character actress. Like, she's not usually like a, a star billing. But being the, you know, the Disney child I am, I always squeal <laughs> when I see yeah. her because she's just so much fun to see on screen. And I knew she was going to die, too, since she's the one who ends up getting murdered. She does in end this up episode. getting murdered. Yeah. As when she's mistaken for Emma, the person who's been trying to kill Emma strikes her down. So maybe we should talk about what actually happens then. Yes. So as Bridget has alluded to, um, and I actually wanted to say as a a preface to exploring what is happening in this episode, I actually found this to be a very well tautly Mm -hmm. woven episode. Like it was well, very well put together, very well written. I didn't lose track of what was happening, (laughs) (laughs) which, you know, can happen sometimes in Murder, She Wrote, like if you're not paying attention, like, because the plot sometimes ambles. But in this one, it's pretty straightforward. Someone is trying to run over Emma repeatedly and she stages her own death and invites Jessica over to the UK to help figure out who it is that's been doing it. As it turns out, it's actually Ollie's daughter who's doing it because she believes that Emma has been holding Ollie back from achieving some sort of career career resurgence, which would obviously, you know, not happen to an over-the-hill theatrical actor. Because he's, you know, because he's performing, like, shitty musical right. comedy, or, and he wants to be a Shakespearean actor. Which, to be fair, he has, an, a, like, an audition later in the episode where he's delivering a Falstaff moment. Mm-hmm. And the guy's like, you're just not Falstaff. He's like, what are you talking about? Like, who better to play Falstaff than an over-the-hill British actor? Like, yeah. that seems to be, like, the ultimate person you'd want playing this iconic Shakespeare role. Yeah. I, under- I was just like, this doesn't seem like a very good casting director if you can't see that. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. I just also love that, you know, there's the scene where um- – Jessica figures out that he used to do Shakespeare. And so that's our clue that maybe his career has something to do with what's going on. But they figure that out by being in his apartment. And the camera is sort of sweeping around the room. And we have all these glorious pictures of Patrick McNee from his heydays in the 60s, his headshots and shots of him on set and stuff. And it's just, oh, I love it. Whoever did the set dressing is like, you get an A+. It was so fun to see all of that. Mm-hmm. And I thought that, you know, I think that McKee does a good job as Ollie. Like, I think he captures a lot of, you know, the richness and depth of this fading actor. And I always find stories of fading actors to be uniquely poignant. Yeah. Maybe it's just, I don't know if it's just, you know, the queer Hollywood aficionado in me that always feels those stories to be particularly, like, heartfelt, like Sunset Boulevard, stuff like, you know, that sort yeah. of a paradigmatic example. 
of course, now the gender is different since Molly is male. But, you know, we have that opening scene where he's delivering this number, you know, his comedic number to this very, I wouldn't call hostile, maybe indifferent music hall crowd, which, by the way, they keep saying it musical. Like, that's like the, the British pronunciation of like music hall. And it's very yeah. distracting if when I'm like, I'm like, what music hall? I digress. And it's quite painful for us as audience members to sort of watch poor Ollie struggling to get even a laugh out of them when they're clearly just there to see Emma. That's the only reason most of them are there is to see her musical performance because then they get excited, but he's just sort of the lead of the warm-up act. And it's quite, it's quite tragic really to see how, you know, little response he's able to get despite the fact that some of his jokes are actually quite funny, even if they are, you know, also kind of misogynistic too. <laughs> but also, I mean, we can talk certainly about Emma and this whole storyline as being evocative of this previous period of entertainment because there are sort of illusions like one of the moments Britain Bridget's like well everyone's watching TV now so who cares about musical entertainment and so you know in some ways this whole episode mm-hmm. is sort of an homage or a swan song for a form of entertainment primarily like vaudeville-esque that is you know very much a relic by this point it's kind of a miracle yeah I mean I have to say it almost felt like we left Cabot Cove and went back in time yes because, like, who still has musicals with, like, vaudeville acts? And then, you know, of course, like, Emma's performance, she's in, like, Victorian dress, right? It's, like, period piece. Right. Um, and even her dressing room had, like, lamps with fringes. It's very, like, late 1800s looking. And I'm like, did we actually go back in time here? Like, this is not London of the 1980s. Where are we? Right. Maybe it is a novelty thing. Like, I'm, I was just, I mean, I'd have to do some research, but I'm wondering if it was just, you know, if there, if this was a f- an actual like, f- phenomenon that existed that there were sort of, you know, musicals or uh, music halls, pardon me, as, you know. As <laughs> I mean, sort of, I would uh, totally go. I mean, well, I think obviously it sounds really cool. I would totally go. I mean, because there's still like burlesque shows and things in New York City. So I'm wondering if it's something similar might exist in the UK. Yeah. If you're listening out there, our Cavett Cove Cassette listeners, please let us know. Write in. Yeah, let write, us know. Write in and let us know what's going on. You know on. what I noticed about the audience that was so interesting is like, well, first of all, we're supposed to notice how sparse it is. Um, but did you notice there's like two punks in the audience? I did notice that, in fact. I was With like mohawks and dyed hair, like actual punks. Yep. I did notice like, that, in fact. Who thought that would be... There's just a lot happening with this music hall and its place in 1980s London. That's all I'm going to say. We don't need to dwell on it. No, but it was one of those moments where I was like, if I was an academic writing an essay about Murder, She Wrote, this is one of those moments where I would, be, I would <laughs> just sort of use that as the opening vignette in a scholarly essay to sort of to sort of highlight how these moments, are, these episodes are little time capsules that are so rich yeah. and so rewarding for the kind of close examination. Because as you say, like, it's a very brief moment, but it's like, why are there punks? What is happening? <laughs> it's 1985. Angela Lansbury is doing an homage to her performance from 1945, which is set in 1890. Like, it's all totally bizarre. It's, it's, right? it's, it's positively bursting with temporal finitude or infinitude. Like, it's just, <laughs> you know, so many temporal plays going on around here. Um. Also, when JB arrives at Heathrow under the guise of inheriting from Emma, she thinks at this point Emma's dead and she is going to inherit um, from Emma's estate and she needs to take care of, you know, all of the arrangements. She's immediately accosted at the airport by a guy who wants to buy her out of the theater. And I'm like, we already did this. We right. did this in the football episode. We did do this in the football <laughs> She's episode. She's not dumb enough to say, okay, sure, I'll sell the theater and hop the next plane back to Maine. 
Come right. on, you guys. So I do love Peter Fisher. I think he's a fantastic writer. But I was like, come on, you guys already did that. Yeah. But I mean, as you say, Jessica's pretty hard nosed about these things. She's not one to be easily gulled into selling shares in anything. But it is interesting that what they want to do with the music hall is to sort of turn it into like a huge concert stadium kind of set scenario. So in that sense, like as I mentioned earlier, in addition to being an homage, it's also indicative of the changing face of like entertainment venues and that's going on concurrently. Yeah. And so I think that that's also a little note of, you know, the historical context that is appearing here. And also just kind of a, I think a reference obliquely to Lansbury's own career that, you know, she eventually gave up stage for the consistency of television. Uh, and Emma's facing, you know, making the choice of giving up her stage career too. Right. Cause that's the thing that happens immediately after her, you know, very successful turn on the stage at the opening of the episode is that both Emma, or sorry, Bridget and the other people in charge of the uh, music hall are trying to persuade her to to basically retire. And that's not something that she wants to do. She's like, no, I would never do yeah. that. I mean, it's the same. She says the same thing to Ollie because she's like, yeah. I'm not going to give up my, I'm essentially not going to give up my career to marry you. That's just not going to happen. Even though he wants her, he says, I have, I have a little bit put by, not a lot, but enough, whatever that means. Um, and, you know, she's like, nope, not going to do it, which is, you know, there's something admirable about that. Yeah. She's like, I have a career. I'm not going to give it up just because you people think I'm too old to be doing I this. Love, I kind of love that. Yeah. Yeah. A, a, a genre of character at which Angela Lansbury particularly excels. Independent women. So if they're first cousins, then we must attribute this to their grandparents. They must have had an incredibly powerful feminist suffragette grandmother maybe it was glennis john from mary poppins i was just gonna say what if it was mrs maybe her name was banks yes mrs banks so can we talk a little bit about the murder yes please because i'm curious to get your thoughts on it so it's not actually really a murder it's really more like an accidental i guess i guess kitty was driving the car at who she thought was emma intentionally so it would be like homicide but she didn't mean to kill bridget bridget was just like sort of the accidental victim yeah she might get away with like second degree murder (laughs) yeah well it's the uk so different criminal laws but true i I was just really kind of off put by the idea that kitty would try to kill emma at all i was too like i feel like Although I love this episode, I felt like her motive was arguably one of the weaker aspects. Like, I thought the setup was really well done. I thought Mm -hmm. that sort of luring her to the theater where Jessica exposes her to her father was really well orchestrated. I thought that Ollie's, like, devastation at realizing what his daughter has done was really well done. But then I was just like, so basically you tried to kill a woman because you thought she was holding your father back. That seems like... I mean, even in... And, you know, TV murder world where motives can be rather weak. It just felt like one of the weaker motivations that we've seen so far. Mm-hmm. Especially since she's like yes! a school teacher. <laughs> I mean, not to like stereotype school teachers, but it just, I just didn't, you, you just never feel, you feel throughout the episode that she has this deep love for her father. Um, but you don't feel that she is in any way malicious or sinister or has right. ill intentions. And it also just, I mean, frankly, like, it's very disingenuous, to say the least, to blame Emma for Ollie's career failings. Like, his, it's not, it's, he has the agency to make that choice. It's not just Emma's fault. Yeah, I do make you wonder, like, did she spend a few years trying to scheme to break them up first? 
before she went to murder like yeah because that would be like the obvious thing right like let's let's just try to break them up why did we did we just jump to murder or like had she been trying that for several years and it wasn't working yeah it, like it, it just it was perplexing it just felt like and it it wasn't mm-hmm. her character wasn't rich enough i think to help that land with quite the emotional resonance it was supposed to like i mean as you say Maybe also because it's Olivia Hussey and she just seems so like delicate and sweet and pretty. Not that murderers can't be pretty. I'm just full of stereotypes today. It just, it just, it It does feel weird. And it just didn't, like I said, Mm -hmm. it just didn't land with the, like the, the oomph that it was supposed to. Like the scene is carried by Jessica and by Ollie, not by her. Like I just didn't feel as a viewer that I was getting this full range of what I was supposed to be getting. Like, this wasn't kidding me the way it was clearly intended to. But I do feel like you can feel Patrick McNeese, like, his character's, like, utter devastation at the end. Like, what do you do when you absolutely love your child and you find out they've done something so horrible? Right. And he still loves Emma, and Emma's still alive. So we're still in the place, you know, that she was hoping to get us out of. Right. Yeah. And I mean... One of the things that strikes me about that sort of the the revelation is the look on McKee's face as he's sort of gazing at his daughter in horror as the as she sort of confesses to what's happened, you know, as, as the pieces fall into place. Yeah. I did think that okay, his name is Patrick McNee. Oh, McNee, sorry. You know him from the Avengers, right? With Emma Peel, Diana Rigg. Yeah, let's say yes. <laughs> <laughs> You know Diana Rigg? Oh, yes, of course I know Diana Rigg. Okay, well, how do you know her? Uh, from appearances in The Muppets and from hosting Mystery. <laughs> okay. Obviously. So, like, like, her biggest, most famous thing is not... See, we are such children of our generation. We don't know all these people from, like, their comebacks and not from, like, the original thing. Yeah, well, I mean, we are millennials, both of us, so... All right, fine. I'm not a millennial. Yes, you but are. Fine. Anyway, he was in the Avengers. Don't let Bridget with- deceive you. She is a millennial. She was born in 1980. That is officially a millennial. It is not. There are different definitions depending on where you look. Oh, whatever. That's that is what that is what everyone who tries to disavow every early into mid 80s child who tries to disavow <laughs> their millennial identity always says, "Well, it depends on the definition." Or they'll say, "Well, I'm an Xennial or yes, a geriatric millennial or yes, whatever." Or Gen Y. Yes. But. You're a okay. millennial, so just right. accept it. Anyway, the point is Diana Rigg, Patrick McNee, The Avengers. McNee. Well, yes, fact, as I was like, saying. Didn't they, weren't they watching it in an episode of Outlander? Maybe. I don't know. I'm pretty sure they were. Okay, anyway. <laughs> anyway. As I was saying, Patrick McNee's devastated visage as he's looking at his daughter confessing this murder is quite extraordinary to see. Yeah. It totally is. He's wonderful in that yeah. role. And I also, like, I did enjoy the the audition episode. Like, I thought that his delivery of, like, the Shakespearean dialogue was, well, really well done. I was like, I felt like I was, you know, watching him in the midst of an actual performance. And I was just like, I was quite annoyed at the director, as I said earlier, just because the performance was so well done. I love his response, too, when the director, like, cuts off his monologue and is like, that's it, where you you won't do And then he just, like, uses actual lines of Shakespeare to hurl back at him. Yep. Like, don't, you don't, don't, don't screw with a trained actor. 
I also teach, uh, you know, usually you and I gripe about the investigation and its convoluted twists and turns. But I actually thought the clues in this were really great. Um, although I do think they would lead you to Kitty much sooner. Mm-hmm. But like, so the whole thing was that he got the audition because he was stalking the director in the hotel. And eventually the director like called and left him a message and said, look, I'm going to be here at this time. So you can come audition for me or you can try to find me or whatever. And um Kitty knew to go look for him at that hotel, which meant she had to have listened to his answering machine, which means she probably was the one who heard Emma's message on the machine saying, I love you. I'm not actually dead. I can't say any more than that. And so Kitty was the one who knew right. to try to keep killing Emma because Emma wasn't actually dead, even though everyone believed Emma mm-hmm. was dead, which is why she ran over Bridget by mistake. Who had stolen the coat that was supposed to have been left to her by Emma. Yeah, wearing, like, Emma's signature leopard print coat. So, to me, those seemed like very clever clues and that were actually really logical and made sense. No, I agree. I thought that, like I said, that's what part of what appealed to me about this episode was that we didn't have... I don't keep, mean to keep harping on this, but the weird phone connections and... I knew you were going to say that. I knew, especially since this one had an answering machine, I was like, you are going to compare this to the phones and we're off to kill the wizard. Or any of the other, <laughs> or any of the other arcane sort of spirals that we sometimes go into in these episodes. So I actually appreciated, as you point out, that it's a nice logical sequence of events. Admittedly, it does have the well, you couldn't have known this unless you'd already heard something else. That kind of convention that becomes very yeah. overused as the seasons go by. But at this point, it still feels mm-hmm. like that's a good lead in. I thought that was quite effectively used um, to help lead us. I would say this episode was so tightly written and fast that today when I was watching it for this podcast, I fell asleep halfway through it and like didn't really miss much because no, this is not this is actually a compliment to the episode because it doesn't really have a B plot. So there's not like any weird tangents, you know, so right. it's it's so tight. And also because yeah. I've seen it a hundred times and I know she's the killer. Right. Well, I actually had, don't think I'd seen this one before. And I said, I actually got the killer on this one. I was like, it's the daughter. Yeah. And good I, for you. Yeah. I actually got it. And I felt very proud of myself. So what led you to believe that? Because I had a feeling that, you know, the, the emphasis on Ollie's career, failing career mm-hmm. suggested to me that she, in her devotion to him, I was like, yep, she's going to kill Emma because she thinks she's ruining his, she's his life. Way. Yeah. Yep. I was like, that's that makes the most sense to me. And it was the only plot that made like it's the one that made the most sense. In yeah. Terms of- so we should say like there were some red herrings, right? Like the fact that Emma owns the theater with Archie. Maybe Archie killed her to get her shares of the theater because Emma refused to sell and Archie wanted to sell. So that that could have been a potential motive. But yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. And um, just in case any of my students are listening, which I doubt. But um, in case any of you are, I did rewind and watch again because I am a good media viewing student. Right. As one should. If one dozes <laughs> off, it's important to either re- – to certainly to rewatch and to you know make sure that you know what's happening. Unless it's a Hallmark movie. Have I told you about my Hallmark naps? No. A Hallmark nap is where you put on a Hallmark movie and then after about 30 minutes, you've got enough of the premise that you can like take a nap. And if you wake up about 10 minutes from the end and you won't have missed anything, you'll know everything that's going on. It's a lovely way to take a nap. Highly recommended. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, totally tracks. There is a a certain pleasure in predictability. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, you know, what's really weird is that this is such a 
an homage to Dorian Gray, but Hurt Hadfield was in the Russian KGB episode, so he doesn't get to be in this one. I know. That is a loss. And you know what we didn't talk about when we did that episode was that he and Lansbury were like lifelong friends. Hmm. After They knew each other slightly before that. He was the reason she got the audition, and they were friends forever after that. He's actually the reason she married her husband. Oh, I love that. Not the gay one, presumably. (laughs) No. (laughs) The one that stuck. (laughs) I love that. Just as a brief aside again, I love it that of all the people in Hollywood, Angela Lansbury is the one who had a gay husband. It's like, yep, that uh, I would have gladly been that husband, really. There's a new news story about it just today when we came to record, um, having news alerts about, you know, how her feelings about her gay husband. I was like, you guys, that was like 60 years ago. Like, I don't I think she's already addressed how she felt about that. Probably. I mean. What's she- the new story? I guess I should go click, but it just feels like clickbait. It probably is. Yeah. I would marry you if I needed a gay husband, just Aww. so you know. And I would marry you if I needed a gay wife you would you would absolutely never nope. marry me that is lie. that is probably true i probably wouldn't <laughs> okay well that's a good place to end this week's episode i love this episode highly recommended 10 of 10 what's your rating on it teach 10 out of 10 absolutely yeah two yellow birds out of yellow birds um yep. So that's going to do it for this week on the Cabot Cove Gazette. But join us next week when we talk about another stellar episode, Reflections of the Mind, with more nods to Lansbury's film career. But for now, I'm Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. And we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. 